Alhamdulillah wa kafa wa salamun ala ibadihi al-lazina as-tafa amma ba'ad So I hope we are all finding some benefit in the words of this book um, You know, it's, it's a pleasure, it's a, sorry, let me rephrase this it's, a, it's an honor to be able to share these words um, You know, it's Amazing. One of the unique things, and perhaps one of the reasons why Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah, is called al-Hujjatul Islam, and this is a term that's been uh, given to him and validated by so many prominent ulama of our past. And I already mentioned some earlier. Uh, part of the reason is because when you read his material, uh, you really do feel uh, stronger in your deen and, in particular, your beliefs. And I think that's important in this day and age. So just naturally with the ups and downs and the questions that we often ask ourselves or if we know someone that's asking a lot of questions pertaining to beliefs and aqidah and worship and just core things of deen that, you know, sometimes we just have these doubts in our mind. Um, you open some of the books of Imam Ghazali and you just read some of those words and then they're very refreshing and it gives you the courage and motivation to want to continue. Um, and perhaps this is why he's known as al Islam. And what's also amazing is, you know, the Prophet said in a hadith that every, at the turn of every century, there will be a reviver who will be sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who will revive the deen. And for the majority of the centuries that had come after the Prophet there's often some debate over who that reviver was at the turn of the centuries. So there's a debate over who was, it, who was it in the first century, the second century, the third century, you know, most Scholars believe that Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, the Khalifa, the, one of the rightly guided Khalifas after the rightly four guided Khalifas, feel he was of the third century, Imam al-Shafi'i maybe in the, in the second. So there's, there's often a little bit of debate, one or two names. For the fifth century, however, there is essentially no debate, consensus amongst the ulama that Imam Ghazali rahimahullah was the reviver of deen. That's powerful, to have consensus of or an of all backgrounds and all types to say this person revived Deen and then, and then obviously that then came down to us. So we're very grateful to him and we're very fortunate. You know, one story comes to mind just to show, I mean, you know, and dreams are dreams, right? But sometimes they have some value. There's a very famous story that comes that um, Abu Hassan al-Shadri, uh, rahimahullah, you know, one of the great scholars and leaders of, of, um, of, of, of the Shadri tariqah, he had a dream once and in that dream, he was in Masjid al-Aqsa. And there, he was with all of the prophets. And maybe they were from ulama there, I'm not sure. But definitely, it was a gathering of prophets. So the Prophet saw and um, I believe it was Prophet Musa, or Isa, I don't remember. I think Prophet Musa had asked the Prophet Sallallahu and he said, you know, Ya Rasulullah, you had said that there would be, that, that, that the scholars of your ummah are like the prophets of the past. He, he said to the Prophet you had said that the scholars of your ummah are like the, um, the prophets of the past. So he asked the Prophet uh, that Ya Rasulullah, um, where's the proof of this? So the Prophet uh, he looked in the gathering and he saw Imam Ghazali Muhammad sitting down and he said, Qum Ya Ghazali, like stand up, O Ghazali. And he showed to, to Musa that here's your proof. Right, here's your proof. Now, it's a dream, obviously, so we don't, we can't say for certain, but a dream of a pious person, especially when there's some isharah, and it's uh, in the context of what everyone else believes about Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah, I mean, it carries its own weight. So, anyways, let's continue. So he says, and I hope that the screen is helpful for the sisters to, you know, follow along. 
um, in, in the text. So the Prophet uh, so Imam Husayn rahimahullah says, okay, ayyuhal walad, he continues, inni ansahuka bi thamaniyati ashya. I advise you about eight things. I advise you about eight things. Accept them for me, from me, lest your knowledge becomes a liability for you on the Day of Judgment. Accomplish four of them and give up four of them. Okay, so he says, I have eight things to tell you about. Four that you should um, try to work toward and four that you should give up. Four things you should work toward, four things that you should, you should give up. But importantly, he, he puts in this clause, do this because I don't want knowledge to become a liability for you on the Day of Judgment. Meaning, I'm writing all of this for you, these words of advice and these pages of advice, this letter I've written to you. And it can't, shouldn't be that you're just going to read this and not actually implement it. So make use of this or, or actually um, uh, take advantage of this and actually execute the content that's within it. Because if you don't, it'll be held against you. This is a reminder for all of us, right? How many times, especially this day and age with information overload, how many people, how many videos do we watch of various scholars and various imams and various talks? You know, audio is constantly playing, clip here, clip there, someone forwards a message. We listen to all these, all these things that are important in deen, but then we listen to them and then we just, it just moves on. So you have information coming, information leaving. But this is all information that Allah Ta'ala could ask us about on the Day of Judgment. So it's almost a double-edged sword to actually just have this constant flow of deeny information coming into our lives. You know, the Qur'an, for instance, as beautiful as it is, the Prophet said about it, Al-Qur'an hujjatun laka aw alayka. You'd think, how would the Qur'an be something that could potentially be a harm to me? There's absolutely no way. But the Prophet says that the Qur'an is, can be a proof for you or against you. Meaning, if you inculcate it and you recite it, it's a proof for you. But if you neglect it and ignore it, because this is such a gift that's been given to you, well then, um, it's a proof against you. So knowledge is the same way, okay? So we treat knowledge the same way, and we hope and pray that whatever we're learning from this, inshallah, we implement and execute as well. So he goes through these, uh, so he says, there are four of them, four that you should do, four that you should give up. In this session, we're just going to cover four that should be done. Uh, oh, sorry, let me rephrase that. These are four advices that he, that he advises to his student. The four that he says to give up, we'll cover that in the next session. He says, the first of them, is that you do not argue with anyone regarding any issue insofar as you are able, since there is much that is harmful in it, and, quote, its evil is greater than its utility, end quote. Right? This is from the Ifmuhuma Akbaru min Nafa'ihima. That there are many things that we go about in life and will uh, come across, you know, you can say concepts, principles, materials, etc., that there's benefit in it, but the harm outweighs the benefit. And so the advice, or sometimes the instruction directly from Allah is, because there's a possibility of harm, stay away from it completely. So for instance, alcohol, it comes in the Qur'an. Allah Ta'ala acknowledges that there is benefit in it. There's no doubt there's benefit in it. And science has now proven that there is benefit in it. At least from a cardiovascular standpoint, there's benefit. Uh, but the harms outweigh the benefits, right? There's a, there's a large study that was done three, four years ago. It was published in, I think, Lancet. And they looked at, in general, if there is any benefit to, to mortality and morbidity over a lifespan of a human being when it comes to alcohol. It's a huge WHO study. And they found that there was no amount of alcohol that could be recommended to a human being that would be beneficial for them from every angle, meaning cardiovascular disease, you know, for protection from cancer, liver disease, etc. So, yes, there's benefit in certain things, but Allah Ta'ala says, if The harm is greater, so just avoid the whole thing altogether. This is now haram for you. So Imam Ghazali is saying, just like that, arguing also, while it has its place, 
And there's room, there is circumstances in which we should debate. By and large, for most of us to engage in that sort of activity, we will miss out. We'll either raise our voice, we'll either call the other person a name, we'll talk about them afterward and say, you know what, I just got into this heated debate. And then naturally we're going to do something that's disliked to Allah Ta'ala. So he says, just don't even argue, it's not worth it. Right, someone starts arguing, that's it. Conversation's done. Smile back. Don't say anything, and then you're done. There's nothing more to discuss. They're not going to want to talk to you if there's just a, a, a wall that they're having to speak with. So he says, for arguing, it is the origin of every ugly trait, every ugly character trait, such as insincerity. Um, he says, uh, he says, it is the origin of every ugly character trait, such as insincerity, envy, haughtiness, resentment, enmity, boastfulness, and so on. He says, certainly, if an issue arises between you and an individual or a group, and your intention in regard to it is that the truth become known and not lost sight of, discussion is allowed for you. Okay, so yes, if there, the truth really does need to come out for a particular matter, right, and it's necessary, and you feel like it really needs to be conveyed, then fine, do so. <clears throat> but um, it, it's allowed for you. But then he says, if you're going to make that argument with me, that okay, I, the truth needs to come out, then recognize, he says, however, there are two indications for this intention. Okay, so he's saying, don't argue, don't debate, not worth it, the harm is worse than the benefit, it's better to just keep your mouth shut, better to keep your feet shut, better not to respond or tweet or like, or not worth it, better to just stay silent. Uh, the Prophet said about this, right? Man slamata naja, that a person who stays silent, that person's saved. You win. I mean, you won if you decide to stay silent in an argument. But Imam al-Zali says, fine, there's certain circumstances where you may need to communicate the truth, and that's fine, but fine, there's two conditions. Right, two, in, under two situ, uh, as long as you meet these two conditions, it's okay for you to do so. <laughs> They're very, very, very powerful. He says, the first is that you make <coughs> the first is that you make no distinction between the truth being disclosed on your own tongue or that of someone else. If you really think that the truth needs to come out, then it shouldn't matter to you who reveals that truth. It could be your enemy, it could be you know, the person you're arguing with, it could be a third person. Once the truth comes out, you shouldn't have any need or desire to have to open your mouth. Now this is very relevant in today's day and age, right? Because now we feel like we, off, we always need the final word in something. We always need the final word. So for instance, um, someone posts something online and we know it's, it's not right. And now you want to, you, you feel it's necessary to speak up and, and reveal the truth about the matter. Now, when someone else does it, we don't just keep our mouth shut there. We'll acknowledge it and say, yeah, I agree. You know, agree with so-and-so. Or, you know, you'll like their re respond or their comment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why, not because, you know, we want the truth to get up. In reality, it's because we want to be the, we want to receive credit for that truth getting out. And that's problematic, right? If the truth needs to get out a particular, about a particular matter, and we can apply this to our own lives in so many different ways, relationship with our families, our spouses, or, you know, whoever it may be, it's fine, but it's, once the truth comes out, there's no need for me to have to then add on to that truth. And it's one of the diseases of the heart, which is that I want to have the final word in whatever needs to be communicated. You know, I want to make sure that it's known that I've supported this. Um, uh, I have to have the last word. So he says, the first is that whether you, the truth comes out on your own tongue or someone else, it shouldn't matter to you. If you really think the truth needs to come out, fine. Then he says, the second is that the discussion be in the discussion in private be preferable to you than in public. 
discussion in private be preferable to you than in public? Now, this is very deep, right? Because this is, this is relevant for us in today's day and age, where the majority of debates and discussions don't happen behind closed doors between two people. Maybe with the exception of a husband and a wife, they get in a little bit of an argument, or maybe between a child and a parent. But most matters are now public. You know, there's social media wars all the time, right? Somebody attacks so-and-so, now there's, you know, two people that are attacking and about 5,000 or 5 million spectators watching this back and forth, right? I mean, we've always known there's not been benefit in that, but this is something Al-Ghazali is telling us about a thousand years ago, that, okay, fine, if the truth needs to come out, then privately message the person, privately call the person, privately speak to them in person. You don't have to create a YouTube video as a response to what they said. You don't have to create a post about what so-and-so did and said to you and what your response is. That's, that's more your interest in other people knowing uh, that you're in the right. But that's a problem with the heart. That's a problem with the heart. Okay, so that's the first thing. He says, uh, that's the first advice he gives us. Do not argue. If you need to argue, uh, you know, because the truth has to come out, fine. But remember, these are the two conditions. And you, we read these two conditions, and honestly, most of us would be better off just remaining silent because it's hard to be that sincere, right? We, we just naturally want uh, people's attention and likes and followers and all that stuff. And in fact, that's why, that's why a lot of people do this, right? They, somebody was saying, we were sitting with, um, uh, I was sitting with um, Sheikh Hussein the other day, and uh, somebody was like bringing up, you know, the possibility of making a podcast, you know, starting a podcast. So he said, he said, yeah, you could do it, but if you really want people to follow you, then it's got to be controversial. If it's not controversial, no one's going to care what you have to say. You can't say, I want to benefit the ummah and create a podcast. No one's going to listen. You'll have like four or five people listening to you. If you really want to, you got to create controversy. And I mean, that's what people do, of the people that are just concerned with this dunya, they just want to create controversy, but there's not benefit in that. Okay, so he continues. He goes into a sidetrack point, which I'm not going to cover. He'll talk about the second thing now. So the second thing he second thing he mentions. Um, okay, sorry. Let me. So he says four things to give up, four things to do. Right. So we're covering four things to give up. The first thing to give up was was what? Arguing. Arguing. Good. Okay. So the second thing, I, think I need to ask questions. I know it's the it's tough the post lunch lull right, so. There was coffee, though, so there. Okay, the second thing to give up is that you are on guard against becoming a preacher or admonisher, for it involves much harm unless you first, quote, practice what you preach, end quote, then preach it to the people. Think of what was said to Isa, quote, O son of Mary, preach to your soul, and if it learns its lesson, preach to people. Otherwise, show humility before your Lord. Right, so this is just a, uh, and if we, he goes into more details about this, just a general notion that, um, you know, it's, our tendency is that once we learn something new, uh, some practice, we want everyone else to do it. And we gauge uh, other people's successes, for instance, in Dean, based off of if we're doing it or not. So for instance, if I'm regular and praying Fajr in the let's say that I've now been given the tawfiq to pray Fajr in the masjid. Now in my mind, if other people don't pray Fajr in the masjid, then they're all wrong, and I'm right. Although that thought didn't come to my mind two weeks before, before I started coming to Fajr in the masjid. Right? If it really was the truth, I should have been thinking about this all along. So what, I mean, what about the Hajjud? Why am I missing that? So now eventually I become more pious, I start praying the Hajjud, and anyone that doesn't pray the Hajjud is inferior to me. And that's problematic, right? We, there's, a, there's a famous statement, المرء يقيس على نفسه that the, that, the, that the person, a human being, a man or a woman, 
we tend to analogize against ourselves or with ourselves. So we, we are the bar, right? Anything above us, mm, they're crazy. Why would you do all that stuff? It's too much. Anyone below us, you know, uh, clearly I'm better than them, right? I mean, they, they're way behind. So we've set this bar and, you know, so, um, so what the tendency of, of a believer is that once something new comes and or something good I begin doing, I expect everyone else to do it and I start telling everyone else to do it, even though I haven't really firmly built, put that practice into my own life. So it's important to just keep this general principle in mind. Now, the Ranima do mention that, yes, if there's an opportunity to speak and benefit other people, even if you haven't fully implemented it in your own life, use that as a niyyah to drive yourself to do it. So for instance, if I'm not consistent in my Qur'an on a daily basis, yes, practice what you preach. You really do want to inculcate it. But the Ranima mentioned that one of the ways that you can try is to actually give a talk on reciting the Qur'an with the intention that, Ya Allah, hopefully these words that I'm sharing with others will finally have an effect on me because I haven't been able to inculcate it. Anyways, he goes on. He says, if you are put to the test with this occupation, this occupation meaning, um, uh, he, so he says, um, uh, he's referring to, okay, so he said, you become like a, a wa'id, someone who gives speeches. You know, we think that this is a very lofty position to be in and, you know, we'd love to be, you know, in this position where we can give other speeches and talks. It's not, I mean, it's not great. You know, this is like, it's, it's, one, it's tough. Two, like he's mentioning here, I mean, you're constantly having to check yourself. Like, am I, am I actually practicing what I preach? So it's not a desirable position to want to have, especially once you've done it enough, you're like, what's the point? But, you know, there's, there's something I should mention that the scholars mentioned. One of the last diseases, so Imam Ghazali was a very ambitious person. And people of uh, people of have spread deen historically as pious as they've been. They're they're very competitive in their nature and they're very ambitious. And one of the last diseases to leave their heart is hubur riyasa, which is a love for leadership. Event, you know, but they need to have that disease, you can say, to to get to that position of qualification. And eventually, that leads when they realize there's nothing actually at the top either. So you do it enough, and you're like, that, that, there's nothing here. Anyway, so he says, if you're put to, test, to the test with this occupation, be careful of two traits. First is pretentiousness in talking uh, by way of idioms, allusions, outbursts, verses, and poems. For Allah Ta'ala, Allah ta the exalted, detests the pretentious. The pretentious and excessive man exhibits inward decadence and the indifference of his heart. The idea of, uh, of admonition is for the worshiper. So, hold on. So he says, um, basically what he's saying is, you know, don't be all flowery in your speech when you're talking to people. Don't try to impress them with the words and poems and et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's a simple message that the Prophet ﷺ had, you give it, that's it. Um, in fact, the Prophet ﷺ is known for having very brief and simple messages, right? He was gifted with this. Say four or five words and get the message across, right? And that's what he's kind of highlighting here. You don't have to sound all flowery and use fancy words and vocabulary that isn't used, it hasn't been used for the last 500 years and you need to really pull up like a Shakespearean dictionary to make sense of things. That's not necessary. So he's saying, don't be pretentious in your speech. Um, the idea of admonition is for the worshiper to recollect the fire of the hereafter on his, and his own remissions in the service of the Creator, to consider his past life which he has spent in, which, in what did not concern him, and consider what difficulties lie before him, such as the absence of firmness and faith in his life's final moments, the nature of the state and the class with the angel of death, and whether he will be capable of answering munkar and nakir. And he worry about this state during the resurrection and its episodes, whether he will cross the sirat safely or tumble into the abyss. The recollection of these things should remain in his heart and upset his apathy. To foment, to foment these fires and lament these calamities is termed admonition. Okay, what he's saying here 
is that if you have the responsibility of preaching or advising other people in deen, don't use pretentious speech and flowery speech and talk about esoteric topics and philosophical discussions that are irrelevant to the salvation of the human being. You should talk about the following things. For instance, he's saying, be focused on service to Allah, consider your past life and repent for the mistakes that you've made, um, remind people about the angel of death, about the questioning in the grave, to worry about the day of judgment and the steps that are going to come after it. Right? Simple message about the simple concept that the akhirah is more important than the dunya and that should be the focus of your speech. Okay? So he's saying this. Um, and this is relevant, right? Because uh, nowadays, you know, oftentimes we'll attend speeches and talks and things like that. And honestly, there's not, a, there's not even a mention of the name of Allah Ta'ala in the whole khutbah and the whole talk. It's like, what are we even talking about? What's the point of gathering? You know, our purpose of gathering are for the sake of Allah and to remind everyone that we're going to meet Allah and there's nothing beyond that. There's nothing more to actually have to discuss. Yes, there's some details in between. But for the masses and the majority of people, this is what we need to talk about, which is our salvation. And that this life is temporary, and there's a real life that's coming after, and we will be questioned about every action in our life. And there'll be hisabah with the Day of Judgment. And there'll be two angels that ask us questions. And there'll be a sirat that we have to pass. You know, this is the greatest calamity that all of us are going to face. Rather than worry people about the calamities of this world, highlight the potential calamity of the akhirah. So he's mentioning this. He continues, informing mankind and apprising them of these things. Um, let me make sure that we're going to continue this. Yeah, warning, uh, uh, warning them of their remissions and negligence, making them see the defects of their egos, so that the heat of these fires impinge on the congregation and the calamities disturb them, so that they make amends for their past lives as far as possible, and they are distressed by the days past in disobedience to Allah the Exalted. All this. Uh, is in this way, all this is termed preaching. All this is termed preaching. You know, uh, when uh, one of the things that our teachers would always mention is that, uh, you know, whenever we'd ask, um, you know, what is it we should talk about when we're addressing people, you know, to ev almost every single time I would ask this question, it would be about remind people about the importance of tawbah and turning back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because if they can take that step, then everything else will be taken care of. So Imam Ghazali rahimahullah is highlighting that over here as well. They remind people that we aren't perfect and that we've made mistakes and we need to repent from those mistakes. He continues, it is as if, again, talk a lot, tying in this whole pretentious speech thing. It is as if, Yeah, okay. It is, as if the, it is as if you saw that a flood bore down on an individual's house with him and his family inside, and you said, look out, look out, run from the flood. In these circumstances, does your heart long for you to give the owner of the house your message with pretentious expressions, anecdotes, and allusions? It is completely repugnant to you. The situation of the preacher is like this, and he should give this up, right? I mean, like there's a fire in a house, and you're trapped to warn people to get out as soon as you can. Are you going to pull out Webster's Dictionary and figure out what are the different ways I can communicate this? You know, what, are the, what is the fl uh, most flowery way that I can reveal this? No, you're, not, you're just going to tell them, look, <laughs> there's a fire, leave the house, like scream, shout, do whatever you can to get the message across, right? And in the same way that he's telling us, the Prophet as a warner, you know, as a Naveed, this is exactly what he did for us as well. That look, there's a fire beyond all fires. Right? There's a, and there's a reality to this fire that we have to appreciate and understand. And so we just need to protect ourselves from it. What more is there to discuss beyond that? 
So he's saying that this is what our reminders should be when we're interacting with people. That look, there is a reality to this fire that's coming. Um, and we should advise people about this. Okay? Um, then he says the second trait in your effort. So again, two, three, four things to avoid. He mentioned so far arguing. The second thing is pretentiousness of speech. But then within pretentiousness of speech, he's saying if you have to do it, then make sure that you do it in this way, right? So he's continuing. The second trait is that your effort in your preaching should not be for the people in your congregation to roar or show hysteria and tear at their clothes so that it is said, quote, what a gathering that was, end quote. For all this is worldliness and that is produced by indifference, right? All this is worldliness. Um, you know, nowadays, so yeah, maybe in today's day and age when someone gives a khutbah or a speech, people aren't literally tear, tearing at their shirts and just hysterical. Uh, but this used to happen in the past, right? People would recite certain poetry and it would evoke very strong, powerful emotions. Um, so, but it does, it does apply for us today, you know? In today's day and age, how do we gauge whether a gathering of deen is considered to be successful or not? Right? How do we gauge? We gauge it based off of how many people attended. We gauge it based off of how powerful of a response was there afterward. How many people liked it and, you know, on social media later on, etc., etc. We're thinking about numbers and what people said. And afterward, they come and scream and retweet and, you know, tweet and retweet. So-and-so gave this speech. He just said this line or she just said this line. What an amazing thing. And, you know, that's exactly what he's saying. Like, that's not the goal of gatherings. The goal of a gathering is to draw people to Allah Ta'ala and remind them of the Akhirah. So this is what he is highlighting. Um, so we should engage gatherings based off of it. In fact, um, from my own experience, the gatherings that are the most simple of gatherings that have barakah in the gathering, irrespective of numbers or who afterwards speaks highly of them, those are the ones where we see people's lives actually change and those people actually begin to attach themselves to the Qur'an and to the masjid, etc. It's not these mate large conferences where thousands of people are gathering and screaming and shouting and tweeting. I mean, we just don't see benefit reaching people in that way. Benefit reaches people when there's barakah in a gathering, and if you really want to gauge the success of a gathering, it should be what was, how much barakah was filled in that gathering. How were people sitting? What was the intention in their hearts? What were they uh, wearing? What were they desiring? You know, was there a connection between the speaker and the audience, etc., etc., etc.? You know, was the sunnah discussed? These sorts of things. So, for all this is worldliness and what is produced by indifference. Rather, your zealous intention must be to lead men from the world to the hereafter, from recalcitrance to obedience, from acquisitiveness to renunciation, from stinginess to generosity, from doubt to certainty, from indifference to vigilance, and from illusion to God-consciousness or taqwa. You should evoke in them love of the akhirah and loathing for the world. You should teach them about worship and zuhud, asceticism. Do not allow them to be complacent due to the kindness of Allah, that due to the kindness uh, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His mercy, since predominating in their natures is, is, is disinclination from the path of law, drive in what pleasures Allah the exalted, uh, displeases Allah the exalted, drive in what displeases Allah the exalted, and getting tripped up by bad morals. Put fear into their hearts. Uh, alarm them and put them on guard regarding the dangers they will face. Um, perhaps their inward qualities will be transformed and their outward behavior exchanged. Um, they'll have acquisitiveness and an appetite for obedience and for repentance from obedience uh, and, rep and for repentance from disobedience will appear. 
All right, so what's, uh, and this is, we're nearing the end here. Um, but uh, again, look at the person who's actually giving the advice, right? Someone who has studied every branch of the Islamic sciences and has mastered it, and is known as a master of, the, of many of these sciences. And then the conclusion that he's coming to after all of this, I mean, literally, he could teach any um, topic possible, and he could share any topic possible with anyone. But the conclusion that he's coming to at this stage in his life, after going through his own self-transformation, is this is what's the most important, okay? Um, this, then, is the right way to preach and advise. And all preaching, not thus, is a curse upon both speaker and listener, okay? Meaning anything else that we do, we're, just, it's, we're wasting our time. It's time that I'll be asked about in the Day of Judgment, time that you'll be asked about in the Day of Judgment. Uh, and any gathering that we attend, the speaker should be very mindful about what they're sharing, and they should think that what I'm about to share, can I justify this to Allah Ta'ala on the Day of Judgment? And the time that I've taken from all these people, that they're sitting here for an hour or half an hour, or Jum'ah Khutbah, where I'm going to have them listen to me for 15, 20 minutes, I have to account for all of that time. And if I can't justify this in the Day of Judgment, then I better just stay silent and, and let them do what they need to do. Because it's a waste of their time and it's a waste of my time. Thus, so he says, this then is the right way to preach and advise, and all preaching not thus is a curse both upon the speaker and listener. Nay, it is said that the former is a ghoul, a demon, who sweeps men off the path and destroys them, and they must run away from him, since this speaker will wreak havoc on their religion and the like, of which Shaitan himself cannot. <laughs> right? I mean, this is deep stuff. This is deep stuff. You know, like really makes you think twice before you get on a podium or get on a mic or whatever and, and, and try to share anything. So this isn't to discourage us. I mean, right now the need is for people to, to call people to Allah, but that's what the need is, to call people to Allah and remind people about tawbah and the akhirah, etc. Um, that, so it's, I mean, there's, there's, there's two sides to the coin here. So it isn't that we shouldn't take on this responsibility, especially if it's been asked of us or assigned to us. Um, but just be very mindful about you know the time that we're that we're taking from other people when we do speak with them, right? And 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 you know what was that? I told you his 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 very cunning, his direct style of speech. I mean, he basically just called us, you know, like Shaitan can't even himself make people waste time in that way. But these speakers who you know waste everyone's time, uh, these people are worse than that. You know, it's it's he's he's very um, direct in his speech. It is incumbent on whoever has the wherewithal and capability to get him down from pulpits and prevent him from sermonizing, for this is part of enjoying good and forbidding people. <laughs> get this guy off the mic, he's wasting everyone's time. May Allah protect us from ever you know, being in that category. Okay, so there's two more things that he mentions to give up. I'm just going to read them. Um, they're more relevant, they're not really relevant to us. We live in, you know, more relevant if you live in a Muslim country. But I'll just read them to you just so you can see you know, what he had to share. The third thing is to give up is that you have nothing to do with princes and rulers, nor see them, because a spectacle of them, gatherings with them, and socializing with them are a serious danger. If you are put to test by this, avoid praising them and complimenting them, for Allah Ta'ala is angered if a wrongdoer or tyrant is praised, and whoever prays for their long life wants Allah Ta'ala to be disobeyed on his word. So I'm just going to read these. Again, not, not directly relevant to us. Um, the fourth thing he says to give up is to give up to accept nothing of the benefaction of princes um, nor their presence, uh, meaning gifts. Uh, if you know that they were acquired, even if you know that they were acquired legitimately. So, inshallah, we'll stop here. Um, just to summarize, then he's highlighting that the the two advices, the things they should give up. One is to arguing, and the second is is um, you know speaking when we shouldn't be speaking generally, but in particular when we're addressing gatherings and crowds, etc., being very mindful about what we share. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, allow us to benefit from these words. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us from 
excuse me, ever misleading people through our speech and through our actions. Well, after the da'wah, alhamdulillah,